How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 93. Ooh, you know what I like about that number, Zeke? What? Because it's really high. It is really high <laughs> as we move through the 1990s film quote-wise, Jake. Are you ready for your film quote this week? I, I'm i not ready, actually. I just I want to put something out on the table for everyone. Whoa. I want to I disqualify myself from last week's quote. Wow. Why is that? I just, it, I feel like I took way too long to get it. You gave me two quotes and then named a character before I got the quote. I think that's a little unfair. So you're saying you're only one out of two now? I'm, well, two, two out, out of two, two, two to one, three. yes. Two to one. Yep. Well, let's hope that you get to three to one this week. <laughs> Jake. Right. Self-inflicted. I appreciate the chivalry that you're... you're... Yeah. Well, let, let's see how this quote goes and maybe I'll take it back. Hold on to your butts. Ooh. Wait, I know this. And I have a follow-up quote if you need. Hold on to your butts. This sounds like an animated film. It has been quoted in many films after this. Okay, give me the other quote. Life uh, finds a way. Oh, what the hell? 94? I came in 93. I don't know. I'm going to submit it. I feel like this is a really obvious one, though. Hold I'm about on to, your to give you the Wait, third hold, one. Hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. God damn. No, I don't. give me your third quote. <laughs> Unfortunately, you don't get it this week. Ah. But let's see if you can get it off the third quote. All right. Clever girl. <laughs> is that Jurassic Park? It is the Steven Spielberg 1993 film, Jurassic Park. I haven't seen Jurassic Park in so long. And hold on to your butts. That could be anything. That could really be anything. Yes, but Life Finds a Way from the <laughs> Ian Malcolm um, is actually recited in uh, the new films. Okay, well, I've only seen... The second one. I've only seen the second new one. And it's cited in that film. Oh, well, there you go. So, unfortunately, Jake, that makes you two for two out of four. Two to two, yeah. Two to two. Oh, well. Can I revoke my... <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't. That's all right. But I'll take what? the loss. That's fair enough. How you doing, Jake? We've got ourselves a couple of beers here. Mm. We don't normally We're drink on the show. alcohol. But it started to get flipping hot here. Yeah, um, I love the good old summer of October. <laughs> good old summer heat. Got to 35 in October. Ugh. Think Gross. about that. That's, that's messed up. That's messed up, yo. Yeah, but... <laughs> You know what? We're here to talk about movies, but we're going to have a few more beers. I imagine the beers are going to slowly escalate over the course of the summer, Jake. Yeah, so you're... Dr- oh, as in the rest of the show, even. Oh, yes. Well, for the next Yeah, few this months, is my yeah. second, but... um. Yeah, I'm finishing my first, but we've got a couple more on the bench, though. Yes. That was the most Australian way to... Oh, on the bench. I love that. On the bench. Uh, it's, it's not really a bench, is it? It's more like a table. <laughs> yes. I just thought it was more like an AFL expression, which oh, in the last week was the AFL Grand Final, so... There you go. Now, now the AFL groups. First off, finally we can pretend like COVID is actually happening again, and they can stop trying to get, put AFL players across the country. And number two, I can't wait for the next six months where all the news stations are just like scrambling for any news for AFL. Like, <laughs> oh, this player went for a walk in the park the other day, and and oh, might have hurt his foot. Yes, there, he might a, be out for a it season. Is, it is a bit of a dry time of year in terms of sports, so but we're not salty. here to talk about sports. <laughs> we need to talk about films. Jake, what have you caught in the last week? 
Um, so I kind of squished everything because I've, I've been quite busy this week. I've squished everything for the last couple of days. Uh, it's a very spooky season, Zeke. It is the season. And I don't think we celebrated Halloween so much last year on the show. No, I think there was an intention to, but we just... I think there was a film that came up around this time last year that prevented us from doing yeah. the film of the week. Because I know October last year, we did like El Camino and Joker, Trumbo. It might have been around that time. We did Silence of the Lambs, but that might have been a little late. Mm. That might have been like November. But regardless, I wanted to celebrate it a little more this year on the show. So I, I exclusively watched horror films wow. this past week. And I fought a, cu- a few, I caught a few classics. Caught a couple more recent modern classics, if you will. Okay. I'll start with The Vitch, or The Witch, with spells, oh, yeah. two Vs. Um, so this is a Robert Eggers film, who directed The Lighthouse most recently, which I adore. I love that film. And uh, this was his, I guess, his directorial feature debut, mm-hmm. as we like to talk about on the show. Uh, I thought it was very well made, probably not as great as The Lighthouse. Uh, I, I was surprised by the all the supernatural folklore elements of it. You know, mm-hmm. it's called The Witch. It takes place in the 1600s. Uh, I was surprised that that took a bit of a back step towards uh, or in service of the family, where mm-hmm. it is sort of this family of, I think it's six? I think there's five. Yeah, seven. I think there's five kids and, and the two parents. And I like that it's sort of focused more on, on turning the family against each other and the 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 fight for survival and all of those elements and just setting it in such a remote part of history where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like, oh, they're having financial issues. It's like, no, their kids are turning up missing. They can't hunt for food. They can't grow crops, like all of these awful things. And then all the supernatural elements are sort of supplementary Mm -hmm. to that. And um, I I thought that was really clever. I thought the actual production design and the, the attention to detail and all of that was just excellent. You can tell... That um, Eggers is just super into these kinds of stories, period yeah. pieces, and creating like this dark tone. But um, I don't know. It just it didn't grip me as much. I think I gave it like a four star rating just out of like respect for it, because like, I can't give it any lower than that because I can appreciate everything they're doing. But mm-hmm. um, it just didn't grip me as much as something that like the Lighthouse did, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one I caught. This is a bit more on the classic side. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh. Which I've never seen, but have you seen it before? I have not, unfortunately. So this is pretty... <laughs> it's pretty intense. Yes. And I think immediately watching this, I realized what it was about The Witch that wasn't grabbing me. Because mm-hmm. when I watch a horror, I have a certain expectation for a horror film. I like seeing sort of the, the horror imagery and iconography of it. I like seeing really like messed up crap happen on screen. And The Witch doesn't really have any of that. Mm-hmm. It's a little more subtle in that way. But then the first two minutes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're like, oh, here we go. Here are like these disgusting images of, you know, these bones and dead bodies and shrines made of corpses and all of these messed up things. Mm-hmm. But I also thought structurally it was very interesting. And much like the film of the week we're going to talk about, it's very much designed around its budget. And what I think was super impressive was... I, I guess it's commitment mm-hmm. to it because it is, it's definitely the most similar to the film of the week than anything else I watched this past week. But what I loved about it is that it does have that huge sort of payoff. The third act is just so uncomfortable to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. I really appreciated it from, 
that standpoint and just the stories behind it of how messed up it was making that film and you know, mm-hmm. they could only afford to rent the equipment for so long so they basically just shot for a week straight which just terrified most of the cast and the crew and um i want to i want i want to buy books on the making of this film because it was super interesting yeah but, fair. um that was phew, that's a film right there we got to do one week um i'll throw it over to you though yeah so um it's been a really long week and bear with me i think prior to the show i've actually told you i've watched less than what i've actually watched which is a testament to oh, how really? long this week is <laughs> um i've watched four films including the film of the week um okay. so i've actually watched three um and one as of today and then i caught the film of the week during the week yeah um so i watched a couple of new releases came to netflix um the way back the ben affleck uh, yeah yeah uh, sports film. I caught that for the first time. The twenty twenty. It's a twenty twenty release. Yeah, I saw it a few months ago. I talked about it at one point on the show. Yes, you did. Um, you didn't rate it all that highly. You sat on a two and a half, so you were probably pretty seldom on it. Yeah, it was, I found it very forgettable. I, I yeah, I you got I can attest, and probably I was a little kinder to it, but I felt very similar. Mm. I think there's a big part of the film that is focused around his alcoholism and it's almost there should be a drinking game associated with how many times <laughs> Ben Affleck takes a drink in this film. Yeah. Um, I just think when you think, you know, particularly in the basketball genre, you know, stories of coach redemption and such like that, are, there's a lot of really good examples out there. You know, for the, every coach Carter, there's kind of a film like this, which isn't necessarily a bad film, but just doesn't, have the same impact or right. the payoff that uh, films like yeah Coach Carter would or Remember the Titans and I know they 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 cover this genre with much of a, so- a softer touch you know mm. they're both Disney produced films so they don't go past a PG right. rating they're a little more family orientated yeah whereas this one was very much a little bit more gritty but mm. then I can come back to things like Aronofsky's The Wrestler where it, it has it's a bit more gritty and disgusting but still has that empath, which I think mm. this film doesn't. I, I, I feel a little bit for him, but uh, something about... I have have my pro- I've still have my problem with Affleck, and unfortunately this is a good example of a film that I just don't think he really works in. Maybe someone else could have brought a little bit more character to it. Yeah, I, I get why he was cast, because, you know, the, the parallels to his real-life situation story, but I'm with you there. When Like, every time he took a swig of alcohol, like, he was popping pills as well, wasn't mm. he? Yep. Like, I just... It just kind of made me laugh. Because it felt so choreographed. Like, I could kind of see the beats in the mm-hmm. script. And I said a very similar thing about Extraction, which was a Netflix film earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that takes me out of the film because it doesn't feel like an organic event in the film. Mm-hmm. It just made me laugh. Like, oh, look, he's taking another drink. Mm. How funny. Uh, yeah, I just... Precisely. Mm. Um, the other film I caught this week was another Netflix thing. It was the 2018 film Stan and Ollie. Um, okay. Yeah, which talks about the story of um, Lauren Hardy. So Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. It's the John C. Riley and Steve Coogan mm. film. It says 2018 release, but I'm pretty sure in Australia this thing came out in 2019 because I'm pretty sure in a very early episode you might have brought it up in What's New in Cinemas or something like that. Oh, interesting. Maybe, um, yeah. Uh, I think that was uh, was out in Australia a little later. That might be a America. It might have just got a big delay over here. Yeah, but I mean, 90% of the stuff in Luna right now is 2018, 2019. Yeah. So, yeah. And I really liked it. I liked it. I think the, the strongest aspect of the film is Coogan and John C. Riley's performances. You're not really asking too much from them. 
Um, it sort of kind of actually feels like it's in the same vein as something like Judy or something like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. you know, stuff that has really good performances, but it does feel like a Hollywood puff piece at times. So you mm. can't really, can only go so far in, in terms of its grade with, with that sort of feeling where... You've seen it before. Like, well, it feels like a film that was designed to, you know, get the, the clap of approval and the Oscar attention. Mm. And I think where... Did this, it? Not really. I think it. I, I think it got a little bit of. I think that was the intention, but um, no, it didn't. I don't think it got that much. It okay. might have got. It didn't market itself as nominations, but I think it was nominated on the Netflix section as critically praised, which generally means that it normally is associated with smaller awards. Maybe it got Golden Globe nominations. Or I th- I, oh, I think it did actually. Oh, okay, and I know Letterbox was kind to it. Mm. Had some good scores on there, but yeah, mm. fair enough. Yeah, it was pretty solid. And the only other f- film I caught this week was I caught today, mm. um, which complete left field one called The Normal Heart. Now this was a okay. 2014 release on. It's currently on Apple TV. Um, Much and, like uh, On the Rocks is now, I think. And was directed <laughs> by Ryan Murphy. Now you're wondering. Oh, oh, I know. He's the guy who does all the TV horror stuff now. Is that it on Netflix? Uh, no, Ryan Murphy, uh, apparently there's two Ryan Murphys too, so you might Uh, be associating it with that one. Ryan Murphy did, um, the Netflix series Hollywood that came out earlier this year. Okay, maybe that that is something. Unfortunately, yes, obviously I was quite critical of that show on this show, Hmm. um, was not a big fan of Hollywood. Um, his most prominent films are this film, The Normal Heart and Eat, Pray, Love. Um. What a banger. Well, people, people were... Yeah, yeah, I've never seen it. I'm just making fun. But this yeah. film was met with a lot of positive praise on Letterboxd. I thought it was good. Uh, it's a really good film. It follows um, sort of the movie. Apparently, it's based off a play. Um, okay. So, it's a play to screen adaptation. Um, and it stars Mark Ruffalo. And um, it basically discusses uh, the response by the uh, gay uh, rights uh, community in the... AIDS epidemic of the 1980s mm. and it's set over the course of a couple of years and sort of the the main central focus is the um, methodologies in which people within the uh, you know the gay rights community had towards responding to AIDS the AIDS epidemic because obviously a big part of their activist group was to promote sexual relations with each other mm. prior to the AIDS epidemic and if you know that we now know that that epidemic was the cause uh, was caused by a lot of sexually transmitted uh, relations. So mm. there was a major conflict of interest between that and their terms of their community. And, and there's some really good monologues in there. It does feel at times it's very stage play esque. Um, and I think you can sort of attribute that um, how you will, Jake. I think we've watched films in the past that are, for example, like 12 angry men, which, you know, has had, mm. Screen was that a screen. film first and then a play? Or I don't honestly don't remember. I cannot tell you off the top of my head, but it does feel like a stage play. Well, I mean, most recently we watched um, Baby Teeth, which actually comes to Blu-ray this week, mm-hmm. and that's based on a on a stage play uh, from memory. And also last week I watched uh, a few. Uh, 
a few good men. Jeez, I forgot yes. the title for a second. Which is Sorkin's play then turned into a movie. Yes, and 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 this does have some Sorkin esque in it. Um, mm. There's some very run and chat dialogue here. Um, the running, walk and talk. The walk and talk. <laughs> and it does it sometimes. I, I even said I was like, oh, this feels a bit Sorkin esque. Um, obviously attributing it back to our film last week that we talked about. Yep. But. Um, yeah, no, I found it really intriguing because... I can't believe we did that a week. That was a week ago, Zeke. Yeah, it's been a long week. Jesus Christ. And and this is the thing. I liked some of the... Ruffalo's in it. Jim Parsons is in it. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this just is like in Hollywood. He's in Hollywood. Just in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, Julia Roberts has a really good, solid performance in this one, who's in uh, Murphy's other film, Eat, Pray, Love, hmm. um, which I haven't watched, but I've got it up on my shelf, so I've got to give that a go at some point. Um, but... You know, Ruffalo, it was 2014, so it was a good year for him. He had Spotlight. He had a couple of other, uh, I'm oh, sure so he this is recent. 2014, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, yeah. Contemporary enough. Um, I would recommend it, for mm. sure. I think it has enough performances and weight behind it. It obviously doesn't feel like it has a huge budget, and sometimes that does show a little bit, but it didn't need to at times, the, the central focus. And it does feel sometimes... Like the stage play was a little bit too adapted to screen. It doesn't quite work because it would work really well on a stage. But there are occasionally times. Like well, yeah. What are you talking about specifically? Well, there's a collect. Like for example, in a stage play, a lot of payoffs that come with, uh, in a play, come with a collection on and of linear monologues, in mm. which the collection of the ensemble class normally have a all have a big payoff moment. Yeah. It works really well in a play setting because you're getting the you know the psychology of an actor, like the psychology of a character, sorry, um, and how they you know basically protrude their importance to the story and yeah. what's their point in it. That doesn't work as well in screen because we are obviously told that it's visual. It's a way more visual medium, in the sense of it's less performative. We can mm. say more with less. Um, yeah, no grand gestures and. Yeah. Um, I think, well, the big, the big key is, I think with film, there's less wiggle room to be less authentic. Mm. I think with a play, you're going to all play understanding, okay, well, I'm watching actors play characters. I think there's a little bit more of an understanding there. With a film, you want it to be authentic. You want to really buy into the mm-hmm. setting, and the, the and that includes characters not giving monologues every five minutes. And, it, and there is a, a, particularly between the second to third act switch, uh, most of the ensemble gets... Uh, two minutes of full monologue and okay they're all really well performed and acted and from an acting workshop point of view it looks great because they have these amazing situations where they really can showcase how good they are but from a narrative point of view it slows it down a little bit and mm. it sort of keeps just rehammering home that they all really want I mean, at the end of the day, the debate comes back to they all wanted this to achieve the same result, which is why they're under the same banner, but they all had different methodologies to it. Um, and they've actually found that, you know, obviously because of the epidemic, that um, they, you know, there's a, there's a belief there by particularly Ruffalo's character that um, their actions is are leading to, um, you know, the demise of people you know of their minority you know in in society and they're already treated with bigotry and 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 that stuff and i would i would recommend it it's a really cool neat film and it's nice to see those sort of stage play to screen adaptations some of them 
and and I'm not saying that makes it a bad thing that sometimes it feels very stage play-esque. Some of the, my favourite films that have had this sort of stage play to screen adaptation, like Death Trap from Lou May, mm. who... Um, okay, yeah. Uh, or 12 Angry Men, which have these very stage play-esque um, situations. We love them. Yeah. We love them. Um, it just doesn't work with every film, particularly films that consistently shift their location. Um, yeah, when it's not just in one room where you sort of understand. Which Death Trap is based in one house and 12 Angry Men is based in one room. Yeah. Um, those ones work really well. And even A Few Good Men, you could attribute most of it's in a courtroom. Yeah, there's still a lot of location swaps where I'm thinking, like, oh, man, that's a lot of movement in a theatre mm-hmm. setting. Well, that was actually what I was thinking when I was watching it. I was just like, how would you be able to replicate this many locations? But apparently, you know, most of that stuff gets condensed to like two, three locations. Yeah, well, when I was watching A Few Good Men, uh, there was a few scenes where, um, uh, what's his name, Tom Cruise is like at a baseball thing, like practicing. And I was like, this feels like a Rob Reiner thing when we did, um, when Harry met Sally, mm. we just, we talked about how many locations, like just different variety of locations. Mm. Like that felt like Rob Reiner just like, oh, this is less play. Let's play. Let's add random locations in here. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I walked away from it feeling pretty pretty cool about it. I think it was a nice, nifty film, and if you can check it out, give it a go. There you go. Well, I watched one other film. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one I've seen in big chunks. I've never actually sat there and watched it from start to finish, which I finally did. 1968's Night of the Living Dead. The birth of the zombie. Mm. If you will, let's try to get. Uh, you tried to do this through the countdown through the decades retrospective. I did, yeah. I, I voted for it, knowing that I hadn't seen it in full. Mm. What did it go up? Against? Oh, I went up against oh, Space Odyssey. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, listen, I absolutely respect everything it, it did. Yeah, I thought it was a little even at ninety-five minutes. I thought it was pretty long, in the sense mm. that so much of the film is just expositional bits of. The radio talking to the characters, or the or the, the the TV exposition, the you know the national guard and the police explaining what's happening. And what I found interesting was like how defined the rules of the zombie were mm-hmm. in terms of oh that you know they rise from the dead and they eat flesh and like all of those rules. I was like okay cool. It, it, there was a bit of a disconnect with the way they moved because some of them were like really fast and. Like, one was trying to, like... This is at the beginning of the film. He's trying to get in a car, and he actually turns around, grabs a brick, and then throws the brick through the window. Um, Most zombie fiction, they're not that smart to do that. Mm. They're usually, like, completely brain-dead. So it was interesting to see how it sort of compared and contrasts. And we're talking about George Romero here, who went on to do so many other bits of zombie fiction. He's obviously very famous now, the late, great man he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, I think all of those scenes of exposition, it just didn't really serve the story, which surprisingly was still focused around cabin fever and human survival and humans being locked in this room and what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And sort of, you know, pushing each other out of the way for their own survival. I was surprised at how early that aspect of mm-hmm. zombie fiction was planted here. I was like, oh, it always feels like it might take a decade or so for them to focus the films on oh well who's the real monster and it's like they kind of did that right off the bat which was surprising but um that being said i think you know compared to the film of the week or or um texas chainsaw massacre i thought the, the budget stuff really did hinder it where sometimes it looks a little silly uh it's four by three black and white photography probably 16 millimeter which doesn't look amazing it you know it all comes down to the story yeah. ultimately but 
um, I think that sort of hindered my enjoyment. Maybe if I watch it in a theater with a crowd of people, maybe then it would be like super atmospheric in mm-hmm. that way. Because I've seen a lot of people be like, "This is terrifying." Even today, I was like, "Ah, oh, okay." <laughs> um, but I've, I've seen it now. I can say I've seen it. So there you go. Yeah, there we go. Um, well, I guess it's time to move into our career updates. Jake, do you have any updates? I got a few things. You want me to go through down the list now? Yeah, go for it, bro. Let's do it. All right. So this past think friday i attended this was actually really special so i attended the first ever indigenous emerging business form 2020 mm-hmm. uh, so this was something initiated by john o'driscoll who works at telstra and this was all done at the crown uh, ballroom okay so very very nice setting for all this but basically what the initiative is that john o'driscoll was, was doing is he's basically gathering around um dozens maybe even hundreds and hundreds of uh, local indigenous-based businesses. Mm. And the idea is to get them all sort of in a room and for each to know each other. And I I won't get into more of the backstory because we were actually in talks to do some video stuff that would be shown at the event. Uh, Because of COVID and other things, it ended up just being that I attended the event and and filmed it. So I'm sort of in post doing that now. Um, But it was a really cool initiative and and it was a full like nine to four sort of day, which was very... I was on my feet for a while, mm-hmm. <laughs> but as we always are on yeah, sets and everything. Yeah, absolutely. But um, no, nah, that was it was really special to see, and it was really cool to get all these businesses together. And they shot off a little bit of the furnace, which is a film coming out in a couple of months. That, mm. um, has had quite a bit of a praise from Venice, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's very exciting. I'm learning more and more. Like, oh, I know that person who worked on it. I saw that. Yeah, I was like, oh, Annalise. Was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you worked on it, but very cool. Um, and I, I sort of, I didn't shake hands, but I, I did see the director there. So I probably should have asked Ian to introduce me, but that's okay. Maybe next time. Uh, but that was cool. Uh, also, coming very soon, we finally announced this, that we're going to have a newsletter for Clicker Productions. That's pretty cool. So if you go on our contact page on our website, you can request to be a part of the newsletter. The first of every month, we're sending you a newsletter that kind of gives you all the details and everything we're doing from a month-to-month basis, including this very podcast, Zeke. Oof. Oof. Huge. <laughs> Big off. No, but that's very Encroaching exciting. Encroaching in on 100 episodes. We are. We're very, very close now. We but, are. Um, yes, yeah, so that's some of the stuff I got up to in the last week. It's pretty cool, though. Yeah. Well, um, I've also been pretty flat out, so as I might have talked a little Busy bit about... Boy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, starting from not last weekend that's just gone by, but the weekend before... I had a documentary film shoot um, this weekend that had just passed us. I had reshoots for the short film that I talked about earlier, Puncture. I'm trying to remember what episode that was. Oh, it would have been about a month ago. So probably yeah. around 88, 89. Yeah, I don't um, want to throw a number out, but... um, um yeah. In that vicinity, uh, we had reshoots for that. So that was a two-day reshoot. And then this weekend coming up, I will be director of photography for another short film called Cascade. Um, so three film shoots in three consecutive weekends, Jake, and I'm feeling it. (laughs) Go to sleep, mate. (laughs) Um, and yeah, so it's been, uh, they all went well, very long days, very good hour, you know, it's hours that that they start to stack up after a while, but Mm. hopefully the end results will all justify the time and the means. And it's why we do this. It's why we talk about it on the show. Um, it's really nice to have. Um, an opportunity to use all of the equipment that 
you know you acquire over the years mm. and you know really start to get to know your equipment which is a little bit you know you've sort of come with your development with your you know your drone photography yeah yeah um soaring saturdays as they call it yeah <laughs> and you know it's it, it's really nice to take that opportunity to really be like be able to just instantly do things without even thinking about it you know mm. which i really really appreciate and really enjoy um but overall yeah it's been it's been good um I'm really looking forward to continuing to develop stuff as as my work, my just my everyday work starts to wind mm. down in the summer. So oh, exciting! That'll be exciting. But yeah, do you so, have a time frame on when any of these are gonna finish post production or? Or probably mid to late November. Um, That's really soon. <laughs> so if you recall, last year on the show we were talking about Jake and I as we were approaching the end of our undergrad undergraduate degrees. But the um <laughs> undergraduate degrees uh we had our own showcase and like every year that goes through there'll be another showcase this year so hopefully okay um this year compared to the year jake and i graduated there's a few more films so there's thus competition um between them now any yeah, some of them are like going up so it'll be interesting to see who goes up i was really disappointed because i wasn't sure if there was going to be an event or not there was like whispers of yay or nay yeah and um, I only noticed the other day. I looked. I went on my phone on my Facebook. I saw a bunch of my photography friends from back when we were all in class together. They had done like a like a Bunnings sort of thing to to raise money to make like a better event. I was like, oh, I would have gone to that. Yeah, I was really upset. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's really exciting to see what will come up in in those things. So hopefully, they're good enough to warrant that on the showcase. It's going to be a big weekend trying to develop this next film. Um, it's a very intimate film. So, and it's my first opportunity. I've really been enjoying, you know, we, we've talked about it a little bit on the show um, with a couple of our films that you often find yourself doing two, three different roles, which is mm. fine, but when you get the moment, when, when you get on a set and you can just do one role, it's a vastly more entertaining and immersive experience, I think. Mm. Um so I'm really looking forward to... I'm trying not to burp, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's all right. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to do that. So, Very yeah. nice. Um, Sweet. We're doing no worries. Stuff. Well, I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Spooky Season, Zeke. Spooky Season. What? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> this week on the show, we're watching Halloween. Michael? Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. On a cold Halloween night in 1963, six-year-old Michael Myers brutally murders his 17-year-old sister, Judith. He was sentenced and locked away for 15 years. But on October 30th, 1978, while being transferred for a court date, a 21-year-old Michael Myers steals a car and escapes to Smith's Grove. He returns to a quiet hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, where he looks for his next victims. That was very detailed. Very detailed. This film was 
I think this was John Carpenter's directorial debut. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jake. Ooh, um, Let me have a quick I, I don't think so, if I had to guess. Um, but this is probably one of one of two or three of his most influential films. Okay. That's for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, double check on that. You have a quick fact check for that one. Yeah. Well, um, sorry. No, I beg my pardon. Um, so, uh, what, two years ago, the spiritual sequel came out, right? Yes, Halloween 2018, which you, me, and Jax were in a theater. That we did. Remember going to the theater, Zeke? <laughs> we still go. <laughs> we still go. I've been many times. I just like the joke. Um, well, I... It's funny, because I've actually... I saw this film for the first time earlier this year, and I talked about it on our Honey Boy episode. That's when I gave my initial thoughts on it, which were, believe it or not, I didn't want to say negative, but very lukewarm, as you might put it. Yes, this was his third film, ah, feature there film. You go. So he had Assault on Precinct 13 and Dark Star before this. Dark Star. Yeah, I didn't think this was his first film. Because I, I sort of... Loosely read articles where he's he sort of talked about, I guess, deciding this to be his next film, for example. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's where that came from. But, um, yeah, you can get my initial thoughts on the Honey Boy episode. And we, Zig, we haven't done a lot of horrors in general. No, we've generally avoided it. We had Us in episode 12. Yep. Um, we did Invisible Man. Invisible Man on episode... Don't listen to it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, 61. 61. <laughs> um... We thought Shirley was going to be more horror-esque, but was not. Yeah, it was more like psychedelic thriller in a way. I think Silence of the Lambs kind of counts. Yeah, 42. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd say... Uh, You're getting better at these numbers than I am. Because <laughs> I'm like, that's not 40. Oh, wait, it is. Yeah. You're getting uh, good at this. Yeah, so we've, we've kind of generally avoided um, the horror genre, mainly because right, it's here not... here we go, Zeke. Here we go. Um... Oh, yeah. That was immensely satisfying. Thank you. Mm. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Mm. We, Almost spat out. It was a boy. <laughs> uh, but. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> We've generally avoided the horror genre simply because um, it's just not a genre for me that I particularly enjoy all that much, generally. Do you hear that? Um, it's like pushing the edge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because. It's a big boy. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's just not a genre that has really been a very prominent genre for us. So, Because um, it's not one I particularly enjoy all that much. Mm. I don't like films that manipulate your emotions so obtusely. Obtusely. Let me finish. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, i.e. particularly sound manipulation. Okay. I, you know, like jump scares. I don't like jump scares. I'm trying to sound academic about it, but really, at the end of the day, I don't like when the guy decides to dial it up to 200 on the on the vo- <laughs> volume dial, just to warrant an abs like a non-diegetic ex- you know expulsion of character, basically. Right. Um, Big words. And I think that yeah, this film doesn't do that. Mm. This is, and that's one of its strengths. It's what. And, and and the 2018 sequel was really, from what I hear, the only one that ever was a real spiritual sequel to this one in terms of its horror is what you can do in the frame. Um, right, in, in terms of the actual aesthetic in that, not necessarily mm. just story. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think um, better modern-day genres, f- f- uh, horrors, if you want to call them, 
um, they aren't just exclusively horrors. They're, mm. They can be psychological, they can be dramatised, they can be comedic. If you take a look at, like, Cabin in the Woods, which has horror things, but because it's making fun of the apparatus of horror, um, it has a self-awareness to it. Right. And um, my understanding is Scream is like that as well. Kind yes. Of. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and if you look in the last five or six years, things like Us and, more importantly, Get Out are still scary films, but they have layers of obviously uh, social and political commentary to them. They they have more depth to them, and, and horrors are no longer Friday the 13th, and they're no longer Halloween. They're no longer just a crazed psycho killer for unexplained reasons, really, mm. just going on a rampage. And Why, I think the difference between something like this and Get Out is, I think Get Out is more ob- obviously about something more. Yes, and I think there are there are plenty of scholier readings of this film where, on the surface, it's a very straightforward slasher, slasher. film, and there's very little plot, and there feels like very little thematically to grapple. Mm-hmm. But there are people who have very much found very interesting things, especially with Michael Myers, as in terms of the victims that he chooses to kill and the the tropes that the film mm-hmm. creates, because it does create a lot of tropes that we don't see in horror films uh, prior to this? Yes, I think a lot of it has to do with, particularly this film, If you're in terms of referencing those scholarly references, they talk a lot about the um, his victims are sexually promiscuous people, yes. generally. Um, and he's quite scopophilic in his presence. And um, they're very well-founded theories. I mean, these are people that have had years of experience in analysing this film to death. Mm. Um so, in terms of our discussion, yeah, we can address that stuff, but, you know, we we bring this show, we like having those sort of opinions, but at the end of the day, we want to sh- ask ourselves, is this an enjoyable film to watch? Would we recommend this film? Mm. I mean, the base of the show is to, to talk and discuss about films, and yeah, we could go searching for those meanings, and that's great, but at the end of the day, it comes back to, would we recommend someone watching this film? And yeah. Well, answer- you've never seen the film before, would you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's like I really like Carpenter's The Thing, and I would still mm. recommend The Thing more than this. Um, maybe from a scholarly point of view, it's probably not as good a film in terms of what you can discuss in terms of academic cir- circumstances. But The Thing is more entertaining. It's got a testament to physical prop design. It's horrific in that sense, but it's entertaining. Mm. And there are parts of this film that are quite dry. Not a lot happens, and I know it's building mm. tension to the the more prominent stuff. But I I think you said this to me off air, right? Um, and I think I still agree. I think I stand by it too. I think I prefer the twenty eighteen version. Yeah. So when I when I talked about this during the Honey Boy episode the first time, I saw I said that I said I think the twenty eighteen is much better. Ver- better the twenty eighteen version of this film is better, and it, not that it's a remake, but it, mm. it's a sequel. Yeah. Um, but I just and that's found it not more a enjoyable. that's not a test. Yeah, it's not a testament to time because there are films. I mean, it's not like if you told me to watch Alien or Alien Covenant, I'm gonna mm. watch Alien. And one film was made 35 years before the other, so mm. it's not. We're on this film. we like on this show. We are not prejudiced to the time in which the film was made. I just think also it's a tighter film. It's got a an interesting hereditary concept to it. Mm. Um, from a scholarly point of view, it's probably not as meaty, but it comes back to, I want to be entertained in a horror. I'm not, it's one of those people that 
tries to get more out of horror than I need to because the genre is not a genre that is overtly appealing to me, period. Right. So things like Get Out and things like Us, although I wasn't a big fan of Us, I was a huge fan of Get Out because of that sort of overt political and social commentary Jordan Peele was trying to make. And I mm. think Carpenter, for the most time, you know, I think he, as a filmmaker, has never tried to say too much with his films. I think people have searched this film for and farmed this field for that stuff rather than him secretly plotting it in right. there, I think. Well, I'll give you this because I have looked up like quotes and stuff that he said. You actually are banging the money there. He usually yeah. dismisses a lot of the scholarly readings being like, oh, well, that wasn't my intention. Yeah. You know, I think so in, just... in regards to, you know, Michael Myers, he targets, you know, these sexually active women and the, and the fact that, is it uh, Laurie? Yes. Our protagonist. Yeah, the fact that she's sort of this innocent girl. She's sort of awkward around boys and she's a bit of a bookworm. She gets made fun of. Uh, I don't want to say it's coincidental, but uh, these are the reasons these people have made these assumptions. She's the one that gets away at the end. She's the final girl, which is the name of the trope. And I'll get into it in a minute. But he has said that wasn't his intention. Yeah, and it comes back to, at the end of the day, film is a very interpretive medium. I mean, people can get different things from every film you watch and consume. And um, that doesn't mean what those people... At the end of the day, I've always found film is, you're right as long as you can justify it. Mm. And you can justify For it sure. convincingly. And so those scholarly readings of this film, they could be completely right and justified because they they can find evidence to justify the point they're trying to make. Yeah. Um, but for him, watching other of his films, Big Trouble in Little China, uh, watching The Thing, um, I've got Escape from L.A. in New York that I haven't watched or They Live, but I'm sure that they are all very similar. The man just, I think, just wanted to make films that he thought were fun to make. Um, I'm just quickly going through his filmography. I'm going to just put this out for everyone to know. I haven't seen any of his other films. This is the only film we've seen. This is the only one. Yeah, well, I can <laughs> I can, I can, can say from the ones I've seen that he just did stuff that he thought was cool, I felt like. He thought he, he wanted to make films that were fun and provocative and violent and but he never wanted to i don't think he ever really wanted to provoke critical thinking and analysis or or create uh emotions above surface level emotions i i feel like that's not giving him enough credit though that doesn't no but i don't think that discredits him though no but i i i feel like he definitely i'm sure there's some intention to this film that there is deeper meaning than just here's a guy who wants to kill people I feel like the actual creation of Michael Myers, and I'm paraphrasing a quote that he said, but there was a character that he made based on, uh, on a, now I'm thinking of uh, Toby Cooper from hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but taking that aside, we're still talking about like the psychopathic person like with the, with the eyes that just scream evil, and okay. there are characters in the film that repeat that. So I think there's something there. Oh, motivation's different, done. though, to... Like kind of critical thought, though. I think if a if a character in a film is is built to the point where whatever they do in the film, you're not questioning it. Mm. That's just good construction of character. But that's not critical thought provoking at that point. That's just well, yeah. This guy is a senseless killer um, with these horrific dead eyes and one of the you know this really scary mask. But um, 
at the end of the day, I think at the end he's a he's a slasher monster, really. Mm. He's not a he's not like a a you know Silence of the Lambs Hannibal Lecter. He hasn't got that many layers, at least in this film. Maybe you right. could, maybe in the Beyond film series, he might have more layers and intricacies. But if you go off the 2018 model, there is no other film other than 2018 and the 78 film. Right, know. given the modern day canon of yeah. this film. Yeah. I look. I kind of agree with that, but I mean, on the same token, I think that there are pieces in the film. And again, this is coming from a guy who said he didn't really enjoy the film yeah. when he first saw it. And I rewatched it, and I think I I bumped up the score because I was okay. I went in knowing what to expect, and that's something I have to accept with horror films. I I'm similar to you. I kind of go in with a certain expectation. Mm-hmm. I go in with the final destination thought. Okay. I want to see the most messed up imagery and deaths you can possibly create. And I, it takes me a little hard, a little longer to get into horror films that are mm-hmm. solely built on tension. And this film and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, those are two great horror films that rely completely on tension because mm-hmm. it feels like nothing happens for the first hour of this film. Yeah. And I said that in February. I said nothing happens in this film. And that's not wrong, but on the same token, I feel like there are pieces of the Michael Myers character you can grab and i think the most interesting part is that the opening scene and we can talk about the way it's shot mm-hmm. the way they dealt with their budget and how they made that first scene like there's so much to talk about from that aspect but i think what's so important is we're in the eye or well, we're in the pov of the murderer yes and when you watch texas chainsaw massacre when you watch nightmare on elm street i haven't seen friday the 13th but i'm going to assume it's the same deal you're not from the killer's pov from the first minute of the film mm-hmm you're usually with you know the teenage girls and then you know the people who are going to slowly get slaughtered off later in the film. Yeah. You start with the killer's POV. You learn his origin in the beginning of this film, and that's something that a lot of slashes don't do. Yeah, and it's it's obviously something that if you want to talk about more from a more academic point of view in terms of cinematography, it's something that we were addressed at some point in mm. our degree. Um, how fascinating that 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 allure is, and it's a really good hook. Um, because it it does put you immediately, like you said, in the mind of, and the reveal that comes at the end of this. It's not just yep. the POV, but it's the the pull of the mask and find that who the guy it is, yes. who it is is not some burly, disgusting, like you said, nightmare in Elm Street or a Jason Voorhees sort of situation. Mm. It's not this monster. It's a ten year old kid. Yeah, and um, that in its own right is fascinating um because that hook it's probably one of the best hooks that a film a horror film has ever had Mm. because it immediately puts you in this state of mind that this kid that for the most part would just look innocent is is far from it he's clearly so sociopath and a psychopath and Mm. Someone that when he comes back later in the film, it was, that's what he was able to accomplish as a 10 year old. What can he yeah. do as a fully grown adult where he is now this monster? Mm. And that that's a great point. And I think that even speaks more to the 2018 version where he is quite terrifying. In tw- and, and I don't think either of us have watched it since it came out, 2018 no. version. Uh, I watched clips today just mm. to see if my opinion sort of swayed mm-hmm. and, uh, no, it still felt, at least the way it was shot and made, it felt very respectful of the original material. But yeah. he is 
very scary in that film. Mm-hmm. And he's scary in this film, but for a different way, where he is so... He's got that straight posture, but he's so relaxed. He's literally just standing around. He is not trying to hide. He is not... You know, he's just there. He's bloody following kids in a car. He's making no... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? No secret about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to... You know, you, you're talking about... We saw what he did when he was a kid. That makes it really scary because, look, you know, he's an older man now. Mm-hmm. Look what he's going to do to these young kids. And I was more interested in the fact that he is so confident that he's just sitting there in plain sight and the attention span of everyone around him is so minuscule yeah. that he doesn't care. And that juxtaposes when he's fighting with Laurie at the end of the film, mm-hmm. which we can get into later. But I thought he was interesting from that standpoint. The fact that he's so confident in his own abilities. How did he learn to drive, by the way? That's a great point they make. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't answer. I like that. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just in that uh, insane asylum, just... Uh... I got a dirt rag in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, yeah. so I think we've talked a lot about the theology of the film and mm. sort of its uh, its origins, but um, obviously the budget constraints were quite limited to this film. Yes, uh, roughly $300,000. Uh, US dollars. US dollars, and you can convert that to... That's probably, what, like a million now? A little over a million. Yeah, so um, pretty inflation. limited. Um, and the creativity is fascinating mm. um, for given the time. Um, I guess the next step would sort of just be going into character performances, really. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, this is the debut of Jamie Lee Curtis, as, mm-hmm. the, as the film points out. And so one of the tropes that I mentioned earlier is called the final girl trope. And it's the trope mm-hmm. that, you know, in slasher films, a lot of the characters are going to get killed off. Uh, but ultimately, there is one woman standing at the end yes. who is able to face off and this actually happens in Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well where spoiler alert, there is one woman who survives the torture and makes it to the end of the film so this isn't the film that created that trope but it definitely popularized it and I think Jamie Lee Curtis she does a really great job in this I think there's something subtle about what she's doing yeah as a teenage kid yeah and um, if you if you speak it speaks volumes about her performance in 2018. Mm. Um, she's hardened. Oh no! Well, she's hardened, but she's also <laughs> a reflection of. They try and make her a reflection of Michael, and her ex- mm. with a lot of the callback shots being more to do with uh, how she's become basically another version of her, just as uneasy and psychologically unstable. Well, there's that one shot that mirrors the very end of this film mm. that they do in 2018, where they swap the characters. Michael Myers falls out the window, disappears, we don't know where he goes, and then they use her character as the flip in the yeah. in the new film. Yes. And that was something, without even watching the original, I knew what it was doing. And I thought that was very clever filmmaking. It was like when she was standing outside her granddaughter's classroom. Yeah, and she just, exactly, exactly spot on. I think with this film, though, she's sort of starting at zero. Mm-hmm. And um, first off, I think she gets a little bit more character than, say, like, I think it's Sally in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think that's her name. Or, oh God, it's an S. <laughs> it's, it's an, I think it's, it's Sally. It's an S girl. S, it, the S girl. It's like meh in Breaking Bad. He had a meh sound. <laughs> but, I f- yeah, like I said, I could I could describe her character to you. you know, she's a bit of a bookworm. Her friends sort of make fun of her because she's innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, 
she sort of looks across this other side of the house like, oh, I guess everyone's having fun out there. You know, they're all having sex and stuff. And then she turns around to the kids she's babysitting and is able to put on that sort of that face for the kids. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciated that angle. It's like, okay, she feels like a fully fleshed out character from that standpoint. Yeah. And, um, yeah, then holds her own. <laughs> I think so. I think, um, I think Curtis really does steal the show, though, and I'm glad that she has this moment to really set her off in, in the career that she wanted to. Unfortunately, she did get married to this series a little bit too much uh, for a while, right? She got, How many films was she in? Out of the Halloween Because I only know, obviously, about the two that we've seen. I'm going to just quickly fact-check this one. You see, because I, like, I've known who Jamie Lee Curtis is for a while, and obviously she became famous in Halloween, but... I've never considered her someone stapled to the series to the point where it ruined her career. No, no. She's definitely been in other stuff. Um, two and three. So she was in the first three. And then okay. The new one. Just like Nancy. In... Yeah. Oh, Nancy's on the second Nightmare in Elm Street. I take that back. I mean, yeah. So if... I'm just having a look through all of her uh, her films, really. Oh, yeah. Um Obviously, out, her, I was about to say, her most prominent role <laughs> recently was Knives Out, um, in which we did on the show. and Yeah, episode 46, I want to say. Both walked away really enjoying that film. Um, My boy, Ryan Johnson. <laughs> no, but you know, like I said, I think she does a great job. And, and she does sort of become the stable. Because, yeah, like I said, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it did all this stuff first. But mm. I think there was something about this film that became... So, I mean, it was the most... One of the most... Uh, financially successful indie films of all time. So I think in terms of it, not copying tropes from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. but using a lot of them and maybe refining them a little bit, it totally paved the way for these other films, you know, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. And um, yeah, the, the, she is the final girl of this film. And yeah. they continue to do that for other slasher films. And I really enjoy I mean, the, the, for me, the two things that this film does, which have set... Oh, beg my pardon. Um, have set a precedent <laughs> for horror films in general yep. is the music and the cinematography. John Carpenter did the music as well for this. Yeah. And, I mean, I think, obviously, we do our outros every week on the show, and I think you did do the... the like the Oh, yeah. Um, last week. I did, um, I did the uh, the faster, like... Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> and although it. simple... It's kind of menacing and kind of uncomfortable. And I have to give full credits to that because I think the soundtrack's amazing. I don't think it's my favourite horror soundtrack of all time. I think Alien still bumps it out. Uh, I like Jaws a lot. Jaws is really good too. Mm. Um, They're all in about a four-year stint of each other. so The 70s, man, they were wild. They were wild. (laughs) They were wild, Um, bro. And I'm just having a geese through because I really want to see who did the uh, cinematography. So Dean Cundy did the cinematography and, funny enough, ties in with the quote of the week, also did the cinematography for Jurassic Park. Ah, there you go. The Thing and the Back to the Future trilogy. Very nice. So along with a lot of other really prominent films like Apollo 13, Big Trouble in Little China, Hook, The Parent Trap. So He's a working boy. He's a working boy. Um, And, yeah, I think his uh, cinematography is great. I don't know who would take credit for the things like having Michael lurking around in the back of the frame and such like that, but I would assume... Well, that's that, all direction, I suppose. Well, particular, it would be a direction and cinematography mix, wouldn't wouldn't it? The suggestion yeah, well, would be. I mean, at, at its core, you got the cinematography, which is the look of it, how it's all lit. 
um, which this film does look great. I love the way yeah. that you shadow and everything. But in terms of where the characters are standing or positioned, the sort of the, the rhythmic move between character and camera, that's direction, really. Yeah. It's funny because he does a cult of... You would argue there's a few more camera tricks too in Back to the Future too. Um, ah, right, 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 yeah. Because of that too. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's really impressive. I think that sort of stuff um, you can see has left quite a legacy in the good horror films, the films that don't use music to manipulate a jump, a scare, but to have right. this monster which has been constructed through the opening scene and what a 10-year-old kid is capable of and what does a 21-year-old 20, six foot four like boy. which makes us feel so empathetic towards uh um you know our main protagonist and you know Jamie yep. Lee Curtis and stuff which means his menace doesn't require noise because we notice mm. he doesn't speak the closest the film ever gets and they do this in both the 2018 version and this one is every now and then they have that little sting like the ding yeah and the first time they use it is in that opening shot when the, the teens go upstairs, the sister and the, the mm. boyfriend, and then the light switches off, and they use that sting in yeah. the very first shot. And then they use it, like, two more times. It's very rare. But to have such an imposing not a jump and scare. iconically scary villain not speak at all. Yeah. Get a few grunts, but never never anything. They, anything. they even say he hasn't spoken in 15 years. Or... Yeah. So... The it's... time's all weird, actually, in this film. Yes. <laughs> um... Because so, the credits list him in different ages that don't make sense, but that's okay. Yeah. So <laughs> to have that le- that like that level of terror without mm. nothing, and I mean, obviously, there's some very iconic stories behind this film, such as the mask is a Captain Kirk mask from Star Trek. Oh, is it actually? Yeah, that was <laughs> it was a two dollar fifty Captain Kirk mask that was spray painted. That makes a lot quite. of sense. Um, yeah, which creates this horrifying looking. Uh, disembodied face mask, mm. which um, is a fascinating, uh, you know, iconography and symbolism that you know films have obviously tried to, you know, not par- Re- uh, homage. Yeah, homage okay. would yep. be a, an accurate thing. You know, you think of the Purge with the face masks and the Purge and stuff like and Jigsaw. Even Saw. even the light, very very local film shot in Kalgoorlie. Mm. Um, they have these uh, masks. All the villains have like this sort of clown laughing. Mask. They're not clowns, but yeah, yeah. You know, the fear, the fear to face with the the, the smiley and mm. the saddie. Yeah, but um, you're right. Just this mask iconography that seemed to kept. Got, I mean, Jason with the hockey mask. Yeah, um, but to have a mask that is literally a face, it's another mm. face. Yeah, is is an interesting one. Um, and there's definitely. Obviously, knowing the production context, it probably was all they could afford with their budget. But <laughs> for sure, yeah, um, it's interesting in terms of I'm sure that there's certain people that would try and mine that for some, you know, scholarly opinions and such. That it's another face, another identity. I actually have read one theory about the mask and how it it compares like male scopophilia and all of that. Yeah, yeah, it, it was essentially something like. There was that one point at the very end when he's chasing um, Laurie, and he does he does tend to struggle with her more because mm. she's actually fighting. I guess he's not used to that. But there is a part when she unmasks him for like a brief moment, and I've read people akin that to how like there are certain men who watch this film they put themselves in his position because he is sort of this faceless, mm. uh, wordless 
character chasing down these women and that that moment of her pulling the mask off is sort of a like a stab and like the oh you can't put yourself in him anymore because yeah. the mask has been removed or well, he can't cope too mm. yeah like he has to put it on so it almost can be him enabling that behavior too so yeah i think mm. that there's definitely something in there so um yeah. props to that person whoever it was i forget is there on wikipedia else you'd like to add mr um, wikipedia boy uh, pretty, you know what? The only other thing really is we should talk about the psychiatrist who, for a good portion of the film, we cut to him chasing down. So obviously Michael Myers escapes mm-hmm. um, in the second scene of the film, and we spend you know half the film with him and the and the the women that he's tracking down, and then we spend the other half with the psychiatrist talking to like the police chief or whoever, yeah, and then tracking him down. And look, I get why these scenes are there; they're kind of necessary because that's where they're gonna have their wide discussion of like you know, evil's place in society, blah, 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 all of mm-hmm. that, all of that jazz. Um, but I feel like the scenes are just very obviously less interesting than yeah. the rest of the film. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of them. And I actually think that's actually also the weaker part of the 2018 release too. Oh, cause um, yeah, they do the a police, similar thing. Between the police chief and the psychiatrist. Um, they kill their characters off earlier though, don't they? In the... In 2018. No, the psychiatrist gets it, I think, towards the end of the second act. Okay. I might be thinking of those reporters. The reporters do die. They the die end. really quickly. That's when he gets his mask back. Yes, because they have it. They mm. have the mask. Yes. Good Good call, 99. My saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually get smart. I, I stole your saying. Yeah, um, yeah, you didn't create it. <laughs> no. Um, I'm the one who cites that. <laughs> but yeah, sure. yeah, I think they do last... Uh, a lot longer, I think, in both of them, because the chief gets killed by the psychiatrist in the 2018 release. Right, that's a bit of a twist, isn't it? Yeah, well, like... the psychiatrist is obsessed with. Yep. Michael. I do. It's kind of a that. little canny and dumb, and it sort of just enables. A twi- I, I, it's one of the few things I'm kind of eh, on in the new one, but. Gotcha. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just not as engaging, unfortunately. Nah, but you just of, want to skip ahead to the next. There's a little pad rud time situation <laughs> sometimes, but, um, you know, they get their 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 ends right. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially at the end, he comes in and gets those gunshots mm-hmm. to Michael Myers. Exactly. Who, uh, can't he just can't die? No. No, die. and I think that that probably should uh, move us into our highlight scenes here. For sure. Well. What's your highlight scene, Mr. Ezekiel? It's, I think it's just... We don't want to say the opening scene, do we? <laughs> I don't want... A, I'm really trying to avoid it. It's but a it's, cheat, isn't it? it? It is a cheat. Um, I think with films like this, it's unfortunately... Because it's such an iconic scene, it's very difficult. It's t- it's kind of like if you went to um, something like Alien and you were like, oh, well, the, the first chest burst scene or... Right. You know, stuff like that. You just can't use those scenes because they're so creative and they're so they're iconic i mean they're yeah. used in film schools as something that it's like hey you want a hook this is a hook right here watch the first five minutes of this film yeah um and it's very it just is the best scene of the film it obviously is yes but uh, i can go first if you want yeah because I've, I've picked one uh i picked the scene this is towards the end when uh laurie's sort of looking for her friends and she finds all three of them dead in different ones mm-hmm. on the bed with the with the the sisters uh, Michael Myers' sister's gravestone there and then she finds her friends in the closet like it all happens at once which I thought was really cool I was like oh, okay because you're sort of looking for that payoff in a way yeah but I forgot watching this the second time I was like oh yeah she finds them all like together 
Mm. Like she doesn't sort of find one and then 20 minutes later, it's like it all happens in one big shocking moment. And I was like, I really like the way that's done. Yeah. Very well done. I really like the, I mean, I like the final conflict between the two. I mm. think it's done better in the, I mean, 2018 release has a couple more layers to it with obviously the intergenerational sort of stuff, but. And, and also the, the But they both work really well together because <laughs> yeah, they, they pay off each other. One, yep. it's the hunter becomes the hunted situation and um, it's more, it's kind of interesting in the 2018 release because it's obviously subverting the genre that was created by the 78 version. Right. In terms of final girl is just this person that's trying to survive. Whereas in the 18 version, it's there's more characters. Well, there's more back and forth too, between Curtis and, and mm. Michael. Um, it definitely feels like a more play, fair, fair playing field, but still has that level of, she's not invincible. Like it becomes very apparent in that yep. one, but in the 78 version, she's just trying to survive really. Yeah. For the most part. And, um, it's it's kind of funny watching that now in hindsight because it's like obviously it's hugely innovative for its time, but I don't think it age this film ages as well as something like Alien or like you brought up Jaws. Okay. I think these films those films have a bit more longevity because well one's based in science fiction and then the other one's based with a killer shark. So <laughs> um, and I think the um, this film, obviously, because of its legacy, is probably more important for that than anything else. Yeah, I, I suppose. In terms of... The only scene for me that I sort of laugh, I'm like, man, this is kind of shockingly done, is when Michael Myers steals the, the police patrol car. Mm-hmm. At the very, like, it's just... It's so roughly done. And again, they have a low budget, but that's one of those things that's like, ugh, that doesn't hold up. Everything yeah. else does, I reckon. Oh, it's but. more... It's not the filmmaking okay i'm talking about sort of the we've moved past at this point in our horror has grown past its slasher roots i think right um and i think the slasher roots started we started to move away from those post 80s so from 90s onwards it started to grow and progress away and i think nowadays i mean obviously we had us on the show in episode 12 and we both watched get out beforehand at Mm. that point and you know, even other things like It Comes at Night is apparently, you know, really innovative and kind of subversive. And I think horror has grown and developed, not yeah. gotten better or worse, but has changed. Well, in, in all fairness, I feel like the slasher genre, it's a subgenre of horror. Yes. And I feel like the, the clever, I mean, The Exorcist came out like five years before this did. Yeah, and that's a that's my favorite horror film, and that's like a brilliant sort of melding of science versus religion, like all of these themes that well pass you know your typical slasher film. So, um, I think in terms of the kinds of horrors we're getting on a day to day basis, yeah, like I agree with you. We definitely got more slashes than like psychological intelligent horrors in the eighties and so on. But I think you're right now we're sort of switching back to. Yeah, you know, I mean, Get Out and Us are great examples. The Jordan Peele stuff of what psychological horror, but slasher esque horror can be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was our discussion on Halloween, nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, you can catch it out in wide release on DVD. Really, is it on any streaming platform? It's on Stan. There you go. That's how I rewatch. I think I rented on DVD at the start of the year, mm. um, and then the twenty eighteen version is on Netflix. So there if you got you. both, you can watch both in tangent. Mm.
Beautiful. Well, moving into what is actually new on streaming platforms and cinemas this week. Jake, would you care to answer that question for me? <laughs> <laughs> sure, Zeke, why not? Um, I want to introduce a little something, because sometimes, uh, this is a big week, by the way. Yeah, cool. Um, sometimes there's just so much, like this film, this film, this film, this film, that I sort of have to rattle them off. It's like, I want to I wanna get you a little more involved. So I'm okay. gonna, we're going to do a yay and nay system. I'm going to read out the logline for a film. You're going to give me the yay or nay. I love these innovations we have on the podcast. Half these times they don't get cleared or anything. You just fucking throw them in there. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like... Yes. Innovating the show at this point. Ah, we don't have to do it next week if it, if it doesn't... No, if it doesn't I'm happy work. to do this. All right, well, let, let's see how it goes today. A little yay or nay system. All right. <clears throat> Coming to Netflix. Holidate. <laughs> we got to a great start, aren't we? Uh, sees two strangers fed up with being single during the holidays agree to be each other's platonic plus ones all year long only to catch real feelings for each other along the way sounds like a story of my life it's a nay it's a nay <laughs> <laughs> I can't handle this it's too much too real like sounds like a Hallmark movie <laughs> Oh, it's a Netflix film, so maybe, that might even that be, might be worse. Well, it might feature on Jake and Zeke's legs drink to cringe. Oh, no. <laughs> maybe it's great. Maybe it's a five-star film. Oh, yeah. Settle down, Chief. I, I know the Queen's Gambit's been going around, like with um, Anna Taylor-Joy. I'm like, oh, okay, it's a show, whatever. And then I went on Letterboxd. It's a miniseries, so it's on Letterboxd naturally. And um, it's gotten, like, insane reviews. It's like, oh, maybe I'll go check it out. Huh. Um, so maybe Holiday will be the same. Who knows? You're saying it with the biggest smirk right now. <laughs> I, I don't believe what I say sometimes. Um, all right. Well, uh, coming to Stan is The Pianist, which is already out, by the way. The, Roman the Adrian film. Brody yes. Roman Polanski film. And The Way Way Back. Not The Way Back. The Way Way the Back. the first Steve Carell serious role. Oh, that's only his first one. He did Little Miss Sunshine way before that. Did he? Oh, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. I watched that in a theater, The Way Way Back. I really I watched it on the film. plane. Oh, really? Mm. Same experience. <laughs> no. And the funniest thing was, this is really funny, actually. <laughs> I watched it on a plane seven or eight years, like when it just came out. Yeah, like 2013 And earlier this year, obviously I went to Canada again and flew back. And I watched Last Black Band in San Francisco, like yep. some really sweet Wild Rose, some really cool ones. And I was like, oh, Steve Carell film? And I watched. I started watching it and went, I've seen this film before. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched it on another plane flight. Wow. on that plane. That happened when I watched Boy, Taika Waititi's uh, Boy. Oh, yeah. I was halfway through. I was like, I've seen this. We watched this in class. <laughs> in high school, yeah. yeah. Um, not on a plane, though. I can't give you that. I think the only films I've watched on a plane is like The Internship and... Uh, Good. It's a safe film to watch. Yeah, plane. and maybe one of the Fast and Furious films, maybe. Okay. I, I can remember. Uh, coming to Disney Plus this week is da, 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 The Mandalorian Season 2 premiere. It's happening. It's definitely yay. I no longer have access to Disney Plus. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't think about that. I'm sorry, Zeke. It's aged well. <laughs> uh, I might actually start watching, because I haven't seen Season 1. I might actually start watching it this week. Just for Bill Burr? Yes, just, <laughs> just for Bill Burr. Staten Island also comes to Blu-ray this week, so I'm buying that for my boy, Bill Burr. Uh, all right, uh, classics uh, at Hoyt's. Actually, before I even get into that, I just want to give a little shout-out. We don't talk about Prime on the show. I don't think you do no. about Prime. Uh, but the Borat sequel is now out on Prime. And I reckon we should do that in a couple of weeks, Zeke. Lordy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not, you're not. I've never watched the original. I haven't either, but... 
I've actually heard, like, compared to Bruno, Borat's, like, really good in comparison okay. to Bruno. That's my understanding of it. But I don't cool. Know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Uh, so, classics. If you go to Hoyt's this week, you can watch more Bond films, including Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough. Uh, and on October 31st, so this Saturday, you can watch screenings of Edward Scissorhands' Hocus Pocus and Jack Black's Goosebumps. Uh, Goosebumps. Jeez, I almost said Goosebumpsters. Like Ghostbusters. <laughs> odd film to be putting back in the cinemas. That's uh, Halloween. They're, they're into it, I guess. Yes. All right, here we go, Zeke. Now we're really going to use our yay nay system. New in cinemas. Okay. All right. The Empty Man is a supernatural horror which sees an ex-cop on the trail of a missing girl come across a secretive group attempting to summon a terrifying supernatural entity. It's a nay. No, don't like the sound of it. Just doesn't sound very appealing, to be honest. No, sounds a little uh, cliche. Yeah, that's fair enough. Could be wrong. These are all open to interpretation. So we're just doing this the yay-nay like the... system for the new in cinema stuff. Yeah, like just oh, the log line. It's like, does call. the log line speak to you? Cool. All right, This speaking of cliche, this next one. The Climb sees two lifelong pals test the boundaries of their friendship when a woman comes in between them. <laughs> I can't keep a straight face on that oh, one. I don't know. I'm sadly going to have to say a nay on that one. Yeah. You said it. We, we've heard that before. Yes. I think, that concept. All right. The Mystery of Henry Pick sees an editor discover a masterpiece among a pile of rejected manuscripts and, follow, and, uh, and the film follows her search for the unknown author. That sounds cool. Very nice. There we go. We're getting some yays in this bad boy. That's a yay. I think that comes to uh, Luna. And maybe Palace. I'm not too sure. Mm. Uh, Brazen Hussies is an Australian documentary that explores the women's liberation movement. Took place between 1965 and 1975. And on Tuesday the 27th, that's tomorrow, uh, Luna are hosting a special Q&A screening with the director, Catherine Doyer, on Skype. So I guess they got the Skype screen on the big screen. And it's like a Q&A session. There you go. Uh, that sounds interesting. It's Australian, so that's cool. Mm. But yeah. Intriguing. Intriguing. And finally, I'm interested about this one. Luna are holding a special screening this Friday the 30th for the Old School Horror Gem Assist. Now, I'm going to clarify. I say Old School Horror Gem. I, fi- I think it's an, uh, uh, a homage to you know stuff like The Thing and you know those classic horrors. So it's called Cyst. takes place in the 1960s and follows a nurse whose last day is ruined when a doctor inadvertently creates a cyst monster that terrorizes the office. <laughs> it's not for me, unfortunately. No. <laughs> it's a nay. Unfortunately, a lot of nays there. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's sort of uh, not a parody, but it stars George Hardy of Trolls 2, uh, Greg Sestero from The Room. Yeah, I think it's sort of... Oh, actually, this might be a yay. I think they know what they're doing, you this know what I mean? might be a yay with a lot of alcohol. <laughs> like right now. Yeah. I like it. Well, there you go. Well, there, there is one more uh, there, there is one more film coming out this w- next week. Really? But, Zeke, I think we're going to do it. <gasps> but, Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> this we're going to show. We're watching Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. I didn't see you at school today. I went to the doctor. What's wrong? Girl problems. Don't you ever just wish you were a dude? All the time. This is the most magical sound you will ever hear. Faced with an unintended pregnancy and a lack of local support, Autumn and her cousin Skylar traveled across state lines to New York City on the fright journey of friendship, bravery, and compassion. 
So we saw the trailer for this a few weeks back, Zeke. That we did. And it looks great. does look really cool. And that'll be coming to Luna, I'm guessing. Yes, I think this Thursday. Yeah, is it with any so, Hoyts or is it just Luna? Uh, I don't think it's at Hoyts, sadly. No dramas. I guess we'll have to be doing ourselves a little did, cheeky Luna date. Did you see what I did, Zeke? What? I, after many, many weeks, I finally stopped you from your famous line that none of those were watching... Yes. I stopped you. You did. I defeated you. It took you, you 93 weeks to get there. <laughs> but you got... Well, you weren't doing that in the first episode. <laughs> uh, it sounds better if I do, though. No worries. Um, oh, good stuff. Do you even want to lead us out of the show, then? If you want to mix no, it up? No, I already messed you up enough. But, um... Oh, did we... Oh, yeah, you did yeah on the... Sis... Uh, do you want to say yeah or now on the never really, sometimes, always? Never early, sometimes, always. Never rarely. Rarely. Okay. Yeah, it's going to take a minute to get that one. That is, it's as bad as the devil all the time. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, not it's... in the terms of the film. I'm not commenting uh, on the film. I, I'm, the... I'm confident this is going to be a really I actually, yeah, film. we vibed it. We vibed the trailer. Yeah. Um, we'll see you next I'm week. I'm thinking it's a yay for this one, but we will see next week on the Cinema Sideshow <laughs> podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. 